So as you know, I spent the last week in Cuba. Um, that's why I'm wearing this shirt. I have a story to tell you about it. But I also have just three pictures to share with you this morning. When most people think of Cuba, they think of this. Um, <laughs> I got to spend an hour and a half on the beach <laughs> that week. And it was, it was beautiful and wonderful, and the Cubans all thought it was freezing cold, and they were all covered up in shawls, hiding, and I met this crazy uh, missionary from Finland who was a youth pastor who wanted to swim. I'm like, I'll swim with you. So we went swimming, and it was a blast. But here's my best memory of that week, this next slide. And these are just some of the, some of the students that I had the privilege to teach. There's, uh, there's a bunch of them. I don't have a picture of all of them together. They were expecting 35 students and 50 students showed up. And so these are uh, the people that well, we learned Paul's letters together. And it was so rewarding. I shared this on Wednesday, but these students are so hungry for God and his word. It's remarkable. Um, they have a devotional time in the afternoon before they come back to class. And... Uh, they had no instruments, they had no overhead slides or projectors with words on it. One of the, uh, one of the, one of the women there, uh, there's a few of them that were worship leaders, would just walk up to the front and start singing a song. And as soon as she got to the like, second or third word, the whole class was singing. Like, boom! And praising God. And it did their, their passion. Uh, some of them came 13 to 15 hours from the other side of the island on horrible transportation to make it here. So it was really, uh, it was really inspiring to be with them. Here's this one person who told this great story. He ministers in Havana and he goes to the hospitals. He says, I spend five days a week in the hospitals. And I go from room to room asking who I can pray for and who will let them pray for me. Or who will let me pray for them. And so he's telling this story, and when you're telling a story with a translator, the punchline takes twice as long to get to. <laughs> so I'm like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. But he's telling the story, he said, I was, in the, I was in the hospital just the other week, and I went into a ward with six beds. And he said, there was a Christian in this bed. There was an atheist in this bed. There was a Christian in this bed. There was a Jehovah's Witness over here. There was a member of the Communist Party over there, was like a communist in this bed, and then a Christian over here. And it turned out that the doctor was a relative of the Jehovah's Witnesses and didn't understand what the deal was with all the different beliefs and all the different faiths and if you're praying to the same God or what. And then the atheist spoke up and said, What God are you talking about? And he's telling this story, he's telling it really well, uh, even though it's coming through to my translator. And then uh, he said, So. They all had their say, and then I said, well, who would like me to pray for them? And so the Christians, the three Christian beds said, I want you to pray for me. So he said, I prayed for them. I prayed my heart out for them, and I went home. Came back a week later to the same ward, and the three Christians were gone. <laughs> they'd, been, uh, they'd been released from the hospital. And the other three said, can you pray for me now? <laughs> like, this is the kind of like excitement. And, I mean, that wasn't a joke. That, that's what happens. That's, it's just like, I was, it was so rewarding. And uh, my translator, I thank you so much for praying for me. And Charlene, you prayed for my translator before I left. I have a picture on the next slide. The man in the middle is my translator. His name is Yosner. 
And uh, it's his wife and his uh, really cute and mischievous daughter, as you can tell by the look on her face. But uh, it turns out, I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to convey Paul's messages to this church because there's, um, well, one example I give is Paul thought in Hebrew, so he'd have the word Siddiq in his mind, but he wrote in Greek, so he'd have the word dikaiosune in his mind, which we translate in English as righteousness or justice, depending on the context, which in Spanish they only have one word for called eustica. So how on earth am I going to teach about the righteousness of God? But turns out Yosnir is, he reads regularly from his Greek Bible. He knows Greek like the back of his hand. He's read many of the books in English. That, that I have read. He is a genius. And it, he was such a pleasure to work with. And, and now we come to this shirt. <laughs> so there's a lot of poverty in Cuba. They're, they're paid 25 pesos a month, if I'm not mistaken. And the Bible College in Peterborough sent me down with some uh, money to give the translator for his services. It was 150 pesos for his translation during that week. And, and because 50 students showed up, he had a lot of assignments to grade. <laughs> but um, I, I was just so thankful just to get to know him. Like he's, he's an amazing, intelligent, inspiring person that I put 50 pesos extra in to just say, bless your family. Thank you so much. This is a real honor. And then, so I gave that to him on the last day of class, and then the next day, we get to go to the beach. So the driver takes me up to his house, and he invites me in. He says, I have a present for you. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. It goes the other way. I give you gifts. Um, but he said, I have a present for you, and he pulled up this shirt. So this shirt, it, it, I guess in Cuba, I, I'm learning all this, when you go to an official government ceremony, you have two choices. You can wear a suit, or you can wear this shirt. And it comes in different colors, but they all have the vertical stripes and the extra pockets and the things. And, and so he said, I have this for you. And uh, he gave it to me. And I said, I'm going to wear this next Sunday in my, in my church and tell them this story. But uh, in our travels the next day with some other people, we wandered into a little shop uh, on the, by the beach. And uh, I saw these shirts on the rack, and, and they're 47 pesos. So that's, that's the sort of generosity we're talking about, right? Like, here's a gift. Okay, let me give it to you back. This is something that would... So that's the, that's the kind of experience it was. It was so rewarding. And uh, it's interesting how God's used this to pull together this series for the next, uh, next few Sundays in our church. The series is called just simply The Gospel. And the verse I'm going to keep coming back to is Romans 1, 16 to 17, which we'll read in just a moment. Um, I planned to teach this theme back in January, early January, when I was praying, and I realized that it was time that we got to this, that we took this seriously. But since then, I had a book rec recommended to me called uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone by um, a person named Bates, who is, it's a really, really profound book on the nature of faith. And then uh, teaching these letters, it, it was like God helped everything to come together because I was nervous about this. Because I never know which way to go. There always seems to be so many themes around Easter and how do I get to the heart of it? But as, as this all came together, it just came crystal clear. So I'm pretty excited. We're going to look at the gospel. We're going to spend two weeks looking at the gospel. This week we're looking at the gospel as a proclamation. 
Next week, we're looking at the actual content of the gospel message. And then we're going to look at the big themes like grace and the righteousness of God and justification and faith and how we respond to the gospel. Like I mentioned, I think earlier, N.T. Wright said that the gospel creates the church. You're going to see what that means as we keep going. But here's our key text from Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. All the themes of that series is in this verse. I'm going to read it every week. Uh, maybe at the, definitely at the beginning, maybe at the end too. So this is a good one to memorize. This is a good one to, uh, to settle into. And I have to warn you up front that you should probably um, do up your seatbelt and keep your hands inside the ride at all times because it might get a little bit bumpy. I am going to challenge what may be a, a cherished view uh, here. And I'm not challenging it just to be uh, contentious. Um, I'm, I'm well aware that when Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, he said, don't get into foolish arguments about words. They don't profit anything. So this, I don't believe this is a foolish argument. I believe this is getting to the core of our faith. And I want to be faithful to the gospel. So with that disclaimer, let me ask a question. If you had someone from outside the church come up to you and say, what is the gospel? What would you say? There's, there's a lot of aspects of the gospel, so don't think this is a right or wrong question, but I'm interested in, in your perspective. If someone outside the church asks you, what is the gospel, what would you answer? That Jesus is the Son of God, yeah. that he died for us, yeah. and rose again. And awesome. Awesome, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that Jesus is the Son of God, said to be the Savior of the world who died and rose again, and we are to tell people. That's great. And else, how do you understand the gospel? How would you explain it to someone in simple terms? For me, it's, it's a guide book for living. The gospel is a guide for living? Yes. In what way? Um, okay, when I think of gospel, I think of life. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't know what, how, what your um, definition of gospel is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the gospel is the message of the Bible. Yeah, so, okay. Okay, so if it's the message of the Bible, the message of the Bible is my guidebook for living. Okay. Because I believe that God presented to us the best way that we, we should be living to yeah. make us um, different for living. And also, it brings, it, it, I believe that it brings happiness. Right. You know, and when that happiness comes to you, it brings joy. Yeah. And with joy, um, yeah, not too many people are joyful. So I just, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. because there's so much going on. But I mean, that's, yeah. it leads you to a different life. Yes, yes. I would agree with you that the, I would say that the gospel is the very heart of the message of the Bible. At the very center of the Bible is the gospel. So absolutely. Thank you. It's, it's the truth. The it's gospel the is the truth. The, the, the gospel is, is the witnesses. Right. Saying, this is what seen. This is what we live. We yeah. walk with him. Yeah. It's like I, I 
a lot of times now I, I tell people, why don't you believe what you read in the Bible? Mm -hmm. It's a history book. And the gospel is witness to what took place. If you read a book about World War II or World mm -hmm. War One or the War of 1812, yeah. you believe it. Yeah. Because it's a history book and people are saying what they saw and what happened. Mm -hmm. So why do you believe that and not this? Yeah, you're right. The, the, the author of Luke and Acts says, I'm writing out a very careful report to tell you exactly what's happened. In yeah. 1 John, it's emphasized that we are witnesses to this. We have seen this. We're telling you the things that we've touched, we've seen with our own eyes. Right on. Anyone else want to crack at the gospel before I move on? Arlette. To me, the gospel is the extreme love of God by bringing us heaven yes. through his extreme love and dying on the cross. Amen. Amen. It's the extreme love of God that God gave us by bringing us heaven in his Son. And the heart of that is his death on the cross. That is the center of the, of the gospel message which is the center of the Bible, which is the center of our life and faith. Yes. All right, well, let me go on, because I don't, I, 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 I got to get into teaching mode and get a little more into preaching here. But I'm going, here's the part that might be difficult for some to take, but bear with me, I, I have a reason I'm doing this. When I was taught the gospel, I was taught the Romans road. I don't know if the Romans road sounds familiar to you, but the Romans road was a way of laying out the gospel where you could take four different verses from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and use it to lead someone to Jesus. The Romans road starts like this. We are all guilty sinners before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the cross created a bridge between humanity and God Right? God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. And that if we confess and believe in Jesus, we can receive the free gift of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9. Everything I said there is absolutely true. Please don't mishear me on that. Those are deep and profound truths of the gospel. But it's not the whole gospel. It's not the whole message. And we can be tricked into thinking that the gospel is a message, that, that, that that's the whole. Well, really, there's so much more to it. When I, when I went to Cuba, I mentioned about poverty. There was lots of poverty, but that's not the message of my trip. The message of my trip was I met a whole bunch of hungry students, and we were able to read Paul's letters together, and it was inspiring. Now, that message formed the poverty, and that it formed some of the poignancy of the trip, because I realize the extent to which some of these students sacrificed to get there, but it's not the whole point of the trip. In the same way, the Romans road isn't the whole message of Romans. There's some key parts missing. In fact, if I was to explain to you what Romans is, because I finally feel like I have somewhat of a handle of it, but it's a heavy book and it's deep. Here's how I would explain Romans. There is one God who is always faithful to keep his promises. Both Jewish people and Gentiles all fail to live up to the covenant that God has given us. The Jews have failed in their commitment to the Torah. 
Gentiles have failed in their commitment to the conscience that God has given us. We all fail. The good news is that God has been faithful to his promises in Jesus, who didn't fail. So now, in Jesus, we are all adopted into God's family. And that family is in anticipation that God is going to fix the problems of all creation. Romans 8, this is the heart of Romans. All creation is suffering in bondage to the cages, aching for the sons of God to be revealed. This world's going through labor pains, waiting to give birth to the new heavens and the new earth, is how Paul puts it in Romans 8. And so since we're part of this new family, and there's nothing that we've done to earn it, but it's just the faithfulness of Jesus to the God who is righteous. Since we're part of this family, we need to live like we're part of that family. So we should give our lives as an offering to God. And we should love each other. That's the message of Romans. The four points that I gave you are part of that message. It's not the whole message. The most challenging thing I have about this, and maybe, do you remember this song? We used to sing it uh, back in the 90s. ourselves to Jesus and um, there was a parody video that, that, that went around the internet a little while ago about how we tend to be self-centered in our worship and they rewrote it it's all about me when you approach the gospel from the Romans road perspective it's about me how I can get to heaven it's a story that it makes the gospel a story about me individually or you individually <laughs> The gospel is a story about Jesus first. It's not first a story about us. It's a story about the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's a story that includes a community of people, not any one individual. The gospel, I would suggest, is far bigger than we ever realized. And it's far more profound and it's far more beautiful. And to get to the nature of it, I want to give you a little historical background. Um, have, you ever, have you ever made a snowman? You know, you take a little ball of snow, you plunk it in the snow, and you roll it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Religious words are like that. Words like gospel and faith and grace. They have a meaning that people understood. But as the years of history roll on, that meaning gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes everything we've attached to it over the years. So when we hear the word faith, we think of uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation, faith alone, sola fides. You might not frame it in that way, but that's in the background of a lot of our way we understand scripture. We add all of these things to it. So what I'm going to do now is share with you a little bit from the historical record. This is a letter from a Roman proconsul that was written in 9 BC. So just before Jesus was born, this is a letter we actually have. And I have, uh, I'm going to emphasize the words that may sound familiar to you, but you're going to hear them in a different, con different context. The Romans had this God that they worshiped. I, God, because there is no God but Yahweh, but this is who they worship. This God's name was Providence. So this is from the letter. Providence which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has sent 
in most perfect order, giving us Caesar Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior. Savior is one of those words that snowballs over time. This is a Roman letter before the time of Jesus saying that the God providence sent Caesar Augustus to be the savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end all war and bring peace and arrange all things, since he, Caesar, is by his appearance. This is the birthday of the God, Augustus. This is the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. So back in those days, Caesar Augustus, a Roman leader, the announcement of his birthday was considered the gospel because their God sent Caesar Augustus to be a savior. And that is the gospel. This is, this is a Roman gospel. It's a false gospel. Don't get me wrong here. The reason I'm saying this is to let you know that when, when Jesus came as the Savior, and the gospel is that he was born. It wasn't like they were using these words for the first time. They took words that they already understood. So I have this on the next slide about gospel. There's the Roman gospel that we have a record of, is that Providence, the goddess of foresight, has given us Caesar Augustus to be the Savior of the world who will bring peace. That's the Roman gospel. And in that context, we have the Christian gospel. Yahweh, the creator of the world, has given us Jesus to be the savior of the world. And it's Jesus that will bring us peace because he is the true savior. Now, can you see why the Romans killed Jesus? The cross was a special type of death. And it was reserved for people who challenged the authority of the government. The cross was reserved for people who committed treason. And do you remember the words that were posted above Jesus' head when he died? Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Rome killed Jesus, executed him like a traitor, because he disagreed with the Roman gospel. The good news sent by Rome that Caesar Augustus was the savior of the world. He claimed to be king. Now, his kingdom wasn't like the kingdoms of this world, but that didn't much matter in that day when they were trying to stop all sorts of uprising. They just calmed the things down. So I want, what I wanted to do here is let you realize that the gospel is an announcement. It is an announcement that there is a savior here who is the king of the world. And the Christian gospel, that Jesus is the Savior and the King of the world, that announcement means that all of the other gods are not the King. It meant that the, in, in Jesus' day that Caesar was not the true King of the world, but Jesus was. It meant that all of the gods that they worshipped were not true gods. Jesus was God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul talks about Jesus being in, within that one God. The gospel is an announcement at its very core. Well, listen to this announcement. You may recognize this. Do not be afraid. See, I bring you a gospel of great joy for all the people. To you this day is born in the city of David. Why the city of David? Because David was the greatest king 
of Israel. Born to you in the city of David, a Savior. The word Savior? Who is the Messiah, which was the Jewish word for king. He is the Lord. When the angels announced Jesus' birth, they proclaimed the gospel that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is king. The gospel at its heart is a proclamation. It's a declaration. And it's something that, I forget, one of you said, it's a, or Christina, you started with it. It's a declaration that we are called to share. We are called to let the world know that Jesus is in charge. That uh, the economic system of the world, the uh, desires of our hearts, all the different things we chase after, all of those things are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that is the gospel proclamation. Now next week we'll get into the actual content of that gospel. Because there's a little more to it than that. But at its very heart, at its very basic level, the gospel is an announcement that there is a new king. And that king is Jesus. Now here's the problem. The gospel doesn't make sense. I mean, the Roman gospel made sense because Caesar could keep peace by beating up everyone who disagreed with him. And he could call himself the savior if he wanted to. But the Christian gospel doesn't make sense precisely because of this. The cross, the death of Jesus is at the heart of the gospel. And because of Jesus' death, the gospel for those outside of the church Paul would say, for those who are perishing, does not make sense. Let me read to you a little bit that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that I think explains this. Oh, I don't want this to fall again. (laughs) This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The message of the cross is foolishness. That's why I said it doesn't make sense. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved... It's the power of God. Where is the person who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those words, wise, scribe, debater, refers to the best and the brightest, the most intelligent people in society, both Jewish and Greek. Where is the wise? Where is the intelligent? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation, that's what gospel means, through the foolishness of our proclamation of the gospel to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. For, I love this line, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. That puts us in our place, right? God's foolishness is wiser than our best wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than our greatest strength. The gospel didn't make sense to people because, well, for the Jewish people, the gospel was blasphemy because at the heart of it, it was someone who claimed to be God, yet who was executed as a traitor. It was offensive. The cross was always meant to be offensive. Have you ever seen 
those cigarette packages what the government of Ontario did, they put those really nasty pictures of, of teeth with the, the disease on it. And it makes it, the point of it is to make you think, oh, I don't want my teeth to look like that. And so you move on, right? That's the effect that the cross was originally had. The cross was revolting. It was horrendous. The early church had many symbols for their Christian faith. They used the symbol of the fish, which we see on cars today. <laughs> they used the official of the, the cross with, it looks like a P through it. It's Cairo in Greek. It's the first two letters of Christ's name. They used the symbol of a shepherd, of a dove, of a lamb. But they came over time to use the symbol of the cross because they recognized that this offensive symbol, see, it's not offensive to us anymore. Pretty girls wear it around their neck right? It's lost its shock value. And I don't know how to get it back. But when the early church used this, it was a symbol of a brutal, disgraceful execution. And that was the center of their faith. And that's why the Jews said, this is blasphemy. Our Bible says in Deuteronomy, you know, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. God's, they're under God's curse. And Paul said, yeah, he became a curse so we could live. So the Jews would not accept this gospel because it didn't make sense to them. They called it uh, blasphemy, yet Paul calls it the very sign of God. The Greeks, the Gentiles, so everyone who is not Jewish, which is most of the people in here as far as I know, they called it foolishness because it doesn't make sense. It, you would expect if someone was, was wise and was the wisdom of God come to earth, which is how Jesus is described in the New Testament, if someone was the wisdom of God come to earth, surely they wouldn't meet that sort of disgraceful, humiliating end. And, and Paul said, yeah, God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man. So the Jews called it blasphemy. The Greeks call it foolishness. What do people call the message of the gospel today? And those, those categories I used were from 2,000 years ago. I've, I've got a couple ideas. Some people call the gospel the source of all evil in the world. This is a genuine belief. Many people, especially the New Atheist Movement, they believe that, that uh, religion is the source of all of the strife and evil in the world. And if we could just do away with all religions, all Christianity, all this stuff, the world would be a happier place and we'd live in harmony. John Lennon, one of the best songwriters in the world, wrote one of my most hated songs, Imagine. It's, it's played at memorial services, and he says, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine that time when the world will be one. Oh yeah, let's take away our only hope in this world and say, oh, what a wonderful world it is. But that's that message, this idea that it's the religion that separates us and keeps us apart. That is, that is how many people view the gospel today. Many people view the gospel as a bunch of old wives' tales that we've fortunately grown out of now that we know proper scientific method. Now that we're able to do real science, we recognize that the gospel is just a myth that was held on from a former time, and we can all transcend it and leave those behind. And in fact, those of you who do teach your children this way, you're actually abusing them because you're telling them an old wives' tale that shouldn't be perpetuated now that we are enlightened in this world. Some people view the cross as just one of many paths to self-fulfillment. Right? I call this Oprah spirituality. If you're old enough to remember the Oprah show, 
this kind of, you know what, it's all, it's all fuzzy, it's all good, and this is a good path, and there's lots of good paths. This, these are some of the things that people think about the gospel today, but the true gospel message is offensive. It does not make sense unless your eyes have been opened by God to see it. So I, I fall into this trap, you know. I try, I try to make the gospel make sense to people. I have lost track of where I am in my notes. I missed this part. I lose... I like to try to make the gospel make sense. So I, I talk about Christianity. When I'm talking about Christianity to people outside of the church, I'm, I'm emphasizing what a high moral message that the Christian faith holds. You know, that we are called to love one another. And, and that is the heart. That is at the heart of the Christian faith. And if we just love one another, can't, people outside of the church should be able to agree with that. Or I, we emphasize the social work that the church has done throughout the age. You know, Christians invented hospitals. You know the good things Christians have done throughout the ages? We emphasize the social care. Before the government um, put into place a safety net for society, the church was the safety net. We used to care. The church has done amazing things, and that's something that the world can agree with and, and find good. We talk about the therapeutic message of the gospel. I mean, so many of our worship songs have a therapeutic message in that it makes me feel good because of something. And, and there, to some extent, that is true. When we come together and sing together, it can give us a joy, it can give us a peace, it can give us satisfaction in life. And people see that outside in the world. I, my favorite rock band in the world is Wilco. And I have a, a recording of, of Jeff Tweedy from Wilco at home comparing church to rock concerts, where people all come together and you all sing together and you feel like you're something more than yourself. And he's right in drawing some of those comparisons. And the world can see that there's value in this. I mean, the world used to do this. Remember the Lawrence Welk show? My parents made me watch sometimes. No, it's a tool thing. Or the sing-along shows where they have nothing Christian about them, but you sing those old familiar songs together and you feel good because there's therapeutic value in this. We talk about the community orientation of the church when, when we are uh, uh, putting in our, our application for, our, uh, for the... Uh, the next round of funding for Elevator. We're emphasizing the community value of the church and how it brings people together from all different places and makes us feel one. That's something that the world can agree with. Those are all good things. But that's not the core message of the gospel. The core message of the gospel can't be made pretty for the world. The core message of the gospel is an announcement that is offensive, that is disturbing, it doesn't make sense according to the ways we normally think, and it takes God to open people's hearts to receive it. And we are called to be the heralds of that message. Did you know you signed up for that? <laughs> you know, I think of how God sent Isaiah. This isn't in my notes either. I got to end soon, but it feels like it's an hour earlier, right? So I can't <laughs> I think about how God sent Isaiah in chapter 6 he, of Isaiah. He commissions Isaiah. Isaiah says, I'm unclean. God touches the coal to his lips with an angel. He feels good. He's like, okay, I'm ready for this. What's my message, God? And God says, go to my people and tell them something that they are not going to listen to. They're not going to receive, but you need to tell them anyways. <laughs> Your mission's going to fail. It's not going to be received. You're not going to be listened to, but I'm telling you to go, so you better go. What does Jesus say to the disciples when he sends them out to the lost sheep of Israel? He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. 
What is the gospel? It's not something that the world can understand. To the world, it's foolishness, blasphemy, old wives' tales, the root of all evil, suffering, pain. It's all these things. But to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who have opened our eyes to what God has really done, this is the wisdom and the power of God. So next week, I'm going to talk about the content of the gospel. The actual gospel story that we are called to share. It obviously centers on the cross, but it's much more than that. This is the focal point. This is the moment, John says, of glory for Jesus. The Jews would say of shame. The Greeks would say of foolishness. But this is the moment of glory at the center of the gospel, but the whole gospel message, as I suggested earlier today, is much bigger than that. So that's what we'll be looking at next week. So we're halfway there. This is what I've tried to share with you this morning. The gospel is first of all a message, an announcement that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Next week I'll draw out the implications of if Jesus is the Savior of the world, if he is the king, that means that our greatest temptations, money, sex, and power, are not the king of our lives, the king of the world. No human government is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of the world. That's next week. But we know that the gospel is not, first of all, answering the question, how can I go to heaven when I die? It's a story about Jesus that we are called to participate in. That's later on. It's a royal announcement that there's a new king in town. By the way, when there's, when there's a new king, you know the proper response. It's not to accept him into your heart and live a happy life. It's to bow because he's king. We get to that too. And it clashes with the opinions of the world. As, as well as we try to relate Christianity to people who don't understand it, there are many good ways that resonate as I shared. At the heart of the Christian faith, there's an offensive message that can only be received when God opens people's eyes. So here's what this means. You can never convince someone to follow Jesus. No matter how hard you try, no matter how persuasive you are, no matter how elegant your rhetoric, no matter how pure your life, you can never talk someone into being a Christian. It is an act of God. Now, we participate in that act by announcing the gospel. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, it is God who opens people's eyes. So when we're praying for people who don't know God, that's my constant prayer. Open their eyes. God, give them the ability to see the wisdom and the power in this thing that looks so foolish and reprehensible. Open their eyes. And it's the response to that gospel that we have all responded to, as far as I know. It's our response to that gospel that actually creates the church. I've gone longer than usual, but this is a good morning. I'd like to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing one more time Jesus, Hope of the Nations book. Just before we do that, actually, Kitty, sorry, I jumped the gun. I'd like to put our passage up one more time from Romans 1, 16 to 17. So the band's coming up to get ready. Let's just hear this one more time. I hope we can say this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. 
to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Amen?